about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. that day, happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Suresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then you will go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought into him and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers, who guarded the doorway and who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honour and recognition has Mordecai received for this? the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, friends. Good to be with you. My name is Matt, one of the pastors here. We're going to keep wandering through the book of Esther. One week left next week as well, which is great. Now, this part of Esther is, in some ways, the center of the literary uh, work of the book of Esther. It's really amazingly Shakespearean and comedic and ironic in a whole host of ways. And we're actually going to walk through everything on your handout today. We just couldn't read it all out because that would take a bit too long. And so we're just going to trace our way through that and make sense of it. But the theme as we walk through it that I want you to keep in mind is at this point of Esther, what comes to the forefront is a series of coincidences, a series of things that just fall into place one after the other after another. And as we see them happening, we start to ask questions of who is in charge of this and what is happening and, and why is this happening in this way? Now, coincidences give me a chance to mention my favorite M. Night Shyamalan film, Science, which is way better than The Sixth Sense, in my mind. Mel Gibson, Jaquan Phoenix. It is about aliens coming, but it is more about Mel Gibson, a Catholic priest who loses his faith after his wife has a tragic accident with the car. And he basically, his view of the world falls apart, and he begins to believe that the, the world is just random full of chance and acts and different things. 
And, and the, the film is really about what actually is happening in the world and who runs the world. And is it all just chance or is there some sort of governing force? Uh, one of the best film, uh, scenes in the film is this one where Jack Wan's speaking to his uh, nef- niece and nephew about what's happening as they watch the, the, the flying saucers in the sky, these lights in the sky appear and they're trying to make sense of it. He says this, People break down into two groups. When they experience something lucky, when they experience something lucky, group number one sees it as more than luck, more than coincidence. They see it as a sign, evidence that there's someone up there watching out for them. Group number two sees it as just pure luck, just a happy turn of chance. See, what you have to ask yourself is, what kind of person are you? Are you the kind that sees signs, that sees miracles, or do you believe that people just get lucky? Or look at it this way. Is it possible that there are no coincidences? It's a wonderfully provocative scene. M. Night Shyamalan talks about the film as about how someone could lose faith in reality and in the world. There's lots of reasons why we do. And so Esther today wondrously takes us into a vision of, into that question of, are there coincidences? Is it just random? What is the moral course and order and logic of our world? And it doesn't just give us doctrine or dot points or proverbs, it gives us a rich story to answer our hearts. So we're going to walk through it today. Here's what we're going to do. I'm actually going to walk through the whole story end to end and then tell you three observations about it, Okay. Just to give you the full thing, because it's wonderful to behold, and you really have to make sense of it as a whole, and then we're going to move on. So let's head in straight away to this wonderful story. Where we pick up is Harmon, and Harmon is happy and in high spirits, i.e. really drunk and really happy, because he's been in a banquet with the king and the queen, an exclusive banquet with them, and he's feeling really amazing about himself. But he comes across Mordecai sitting in the gate who doesn't pay him any regard. And so, he has this little gathering of his own, this wonderful narcissist party. And calling together his friends and Zeresh's wife, he boasted to them, you know, normal stuff, about his vast wealth, his many sons, all the ways the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials, and that's not all, he said. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she's invited me along with the king tomorrow. Right? Are you getting the idea? He's very interested in himself. Right? He's gathered people around to talk about himself and how amazing he is and how honored he is and how remarkable he is. He's a self-obsessed narcissist. But he says, all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting in the king's gate. This is a great scene because in Esther, you don't get to see inside any of the characters up until this point. They're all external actions and words, but here you see right inside this evil genius Mordecai and uh, Haman, and he's just a self-obsessed idiot. It's supposed to be this exposing moment, and his ego can't take one person not honoring him. And so Mordecai prevents him with this 
problem. Luckily, his wife is as much of a psychopath as he is. And her suggestion is, well, verse 14, have a pole set up, reaching to, you know, 23 meters high, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go and have the banquet and enjoy yourself after a sneaky morning execution. Now, at this point, the tension in the story rises up. Because as you might remember, or if you don't know, in the middle of Esther, Esther is hatching a plan that revolves around two banquets. And she's using these banquets to save her people. But this happens between them in the night. And so Mordecai will get killed in the morning before the second banquet and not get saved, right? And there is no human agent available to act on behalf of Mordecai or on behalf of Esther. And so we're thinking, oh no, this like idiot, evil, genius kind of villain is going to kill Mordecai before Esther can save everyone. Then what happens? The king can't sleep. That night the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles. Someone get me an encyclopedia so I can finally get to sleep. Anyone. The record of his reign to be brought in and read to him. And it was found recorded there. What? Oh, it just so happened. Uh, Mordecai had exposed Bigdana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who had guarded the door, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king said? Nothing. Oh, Who's in the court? Right, King Xerxes, all through this book, can't decide anything on his own, ever. And so he needs someone to help him. And so, he's, who's around? Oh, it just so happens that Harmon is in the court. I'll bring Harmon in. And he brings Harmon in and says, what should I do for the one whom the king delights in? And it says Harmon thought this. Uh, Harmon thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? which is a great line in chapter 6. He's so much thinking about himself that everyone else must be thinking about me too, right? And so then he gives his wish list. He wants to be king for the day. Go get the king's robe, go get the king's horse, go get the royal crest on his head, and get someone out in front with a megaphone saying, this is what the king gives to the one he honors and loves. Harmon's thinking, I'm finally going to get to be king for the day. Then he says, go at once, get the robe and the horse, and do just as you you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you've recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse, and he robed up Mordecai, and he led, led him around the city, proclaiming, this is what's done for the man whom the king delights in. This is what's done for the man whom delights in. And is so ashamed he has to go and have another pity party with his wife and friends. And he's pulled suddenly out of that and into the second banquet. And there finally, Esther is asked again by King Xerxes, what do you want? What is your petition? Chapter 2, verse 2. Up to half the kingdom, it will be granted to you. Then King Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition, and spare my people. This is my request, for I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. 
if we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he, the man who's dared to do such a thing? And Esther says, an adversary and enemy, this vile Haman, and lays her trap. It's a wonderful speech. She buries the lead. She starts with her, his affection for her. She talks about annihilation and destroyed and killed, and then points the finger directly across the table to Haman. The king gets up in anger, wanders out of the room, and Haman runs over to Esther to beg for mercy, and the king comes back in the room and says, are you trying to molest my wife? And an attendant says, he's a terrible guy. Do you know what? There's a pole over there that someone set up. It's 23 meters high. Why don't you just put him on that? And so Haman is finally exalted higher than everyone else, 23 meters in the air. It, I mean, it's amazing, the timing, the wondrous picture of it, the decline, the fall, the end of Haman. But what are you thinking about all this? If this was the only thing you had as evidence for the type of world that you live in, what would it tell you? What would it give you as a means of living life? Three things. Three things. Real quick. First one's this. In this story, evil does not prevail. It sounds so obvious, but, you know, if... If this was a world of chance, if everything was an equal option, if it came down to who could, you know, have the most power and strategy, then evil could prevail. Awful things could win the day. But that is not what happens in this story. In this story, you see the chief villain sleepwalk into his own destruction. His own, so self-deceived with his own self-obsession that he doesn't even see the trap laid in front of him. And what we see is his own plans become his demise. His own love for honor, the very own pole that he set up becomes his end. There's this wonderful line at the, in the pity party in the middle of that kind of movement where Zeresh and his advisors say something really strange back to Haman. Since Mordecai before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin. You cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. And while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. It's, a, it's an odd statement. What, is it, what does it mean? that Mordecai's Jewish, and if this has started to happen, then you are, you are done, sir. This is all over. There's a hint at this sense of there's an irresistible force moving against Haman. And the switch with Mordecai is just the beginning of the end for him. And by the end of the narrative, you see his evil unveiled as pathetic, as powerless, and you see justice executed upon him. His evil does not prevail. According to Esther, this is the universe we live in. A universe where the, the existence and the destiny of evil is not up to chance. But there is a God who directly and personally 
will bring about the inevitable fall of evil. And that all evil and all wickedness will in the end be exposed in its pathetic and absurd nature as Haman is in this text. In other parts of Scripture, the wicked are described as being blown away like the morning mist or dismissed like a dream when one awakens. We do not live in a world of chance, but one in which there is a God who will mean that evil does not prevail. Whatever you've seen this week in the news, in your life, in your heart, in your future, in your past, in this world, Esther says there's hope. It will not prevail. But the second thing we see is this, that God's hand protects his people. What happens in the middle of this section, in chapter 6 and following, is this wonderful series of coincidences that just fall into place beautifully at just the right moment. But it's all set in course by one thing in particular. The fact that the king can't sleep. And it's a great moment because there's nothing else a human actor can do in the story at that point to shift what is about to happen. But all of a sudden, he just can't sleep. It's an interesting moment because in the rest of the Old Testament, there's lots of proverbs and lots of prophecies about how the kings of the world and their actions and their hearts are actually in the hands of the Lord. And so when you see a king who can't sleep at just the right moment, who then hears exactly the right information and responds to exactly the right person, what you're starting to see is the hand of God. Tapping Xerxes on the shoulder in the middle of the night, to save his people. We start seeing a God who is acting in the course of normal sleep patterns to bring about his purposes. We see the God who raises up Esther, who then in chapter 7 becomes this immense political persuasive figure who takes down a, a, a huge enemy in a moment with her skill. Raised up by the hand of God. What we see in these events, in these coincidences, poking through is the hand of God. The word we use to describe this, or we least used to, is the word providence. This idea that God, in his love and care, is governing things is constantly upholding them, has his hands personally moving in and through all things, bringing them to their ends, caring for his people, looking after things intimately, wondrously, in the thick of things, protecting his people. You know, in some places, the the reason why this word lost its shine is because it began to describe the world, the fact that the world is some sort of machine and God is cranking the wheel and everything's just fatalistic and there's determined in advance and he's just cranking it and it will go to its end. But providence is about the personal care of God for his creation, which in the New Testament is attributed to God the Father who intimately cares for every creature who is personally attentive 
and wondrously governing and moving all things for his purposes, protecting his people. This is the world you live in, according to Esther. And it makes all the difference. To go back to Jacqueline for a moment, he says it well. Looking up at the sky at an uncertain moment in life, as we all do, globally, individually. He says, I'm sure the people in group number two are looking at those 14 lights in a very suspicious way. For them, the situation is a 50-50. Could be bad, could be good. But deep down, they feel that whatever happens, they're on their own. And that fills them with fear. But there's a whole lot of people in group number one. And when they see those 14 lights, they're looking at a miracle. And deep down, they feel that whatever's going to happen, there'll be someone there to help them. And that fills them with hope. You see, in the difficulties, complexities of life, when you know in your bones that there's a Father in heaven who governs, cares, upholds, moves in all things in all times, protecting and loving and looking after his people, there's always hope. There's always a sure place to rest your head There's always a place to look, even when things don't make sense. Esther shows us that God's hand is protecting and upholding the world, and especially his people. But the difficult thing it also shows us is is all this, this, this destruction of evil and this protection and salvation of his people It's unexpected, and it's a big reversal. Think about it this way. If God is the governor and carer of his people, couldn't he have just stopped Haman rising to power? Or perhaps he could have actually given Xerxes a skerrick of wisdom, perhaps, and prudence, and just capacity to rule wisely as a leader. He could have stopped the plan from beginning in the first place, but he doesn't. There's real intent and evil in this story. And in the end, what this is, is a reversal of that. A turning of it upside down. At the moment when annihilation was happening, salvation arrived instead. Mordecai is lowered down and Haman is raised up, but then Haman is lowered down and Mordecai is raised up. Things are wondrously reversed around in a moment. But it's messy. And complex. And can you imagine living in the story? Not just looking back on it. How wondrously perplexing it is to see God act in this way. You see, the fact that God is governing and you have a loving Heavenly Father in your life, governing all things, doesn't mean that life is simple. Or that you can read off what He is doing in a very simple, uh, unassuming way and know what His purposes are and know what He's up to. No! None of these characters would have been able to see this as it happened. There is in this a pattern of the way God's providence works that sharpens more closely when we come to Jesus. 
when we come to his cross, when we see not just the evil figure of Haman, but the ultimate human evil, the execution of the Son of God, the moment when the eternal Son was lowered to common criminal and nailed up to die, that moment where God was fulfilling all of his purposes, where every single promise and time and purpose had been lined up one after one after one, like a universe of coincidences, to bring about salvation, to overthrow evil and death, to conquer things. You know, in the end of this story, Mordecai rises up as Haman is executed. But in the story of Jesus, he does both. He is the one executed who is then exalted. In the more wondrous reversal, the crucified one becomes the exalted one, becomes the victor over evil and death and sin. There is God's providence. There is the direction of the universe. There is his governance of all things in his care. There is a sure and certain sign that even in the darkest, most evil times, there is a good heavenly Father directing his way in the mess, bringing about his purposes, conquering evil, and saving his people. In the end, what Esther, what the gospel, what the cross gives us is not a sure way to know how God is moving in our life, but a deep, settled confidence that this God of grand reversals has turned the universe on its head in his son. And he one day will reverse it all, undoing evil and exalting his son higher than Harmon could have ever dreamed. And giving us a sure confidence that there are no coincidences But there is a loving Heavenly Father directing all things for the glory of His Son and for the good of those who love Him. I was reading one theologian this week who said that sometimes we try to be our own providence. Sometimes we try and take control of things ourselves because we think they've gone too far. Friend, can I urge you tonight to turn away from that and turn to the Lord Jesus and to rest in the vision of the Father you get in Him. Rest in the God of providence, the God better than coincidences, who directs all things for His Son and for your good. Rest in His love. Amen. Let me pray in response to that. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are at work for the good of those who love you. And we thank you that you sent your son into the mess of this world to deal with evil and bring about your purposes. And we ask, Lord, that as we walk through the messiness of life, that you would give us eyes to see you at work as you bring about that which you've already started, 
the reversal of evil and the glory of your Son. Amen. We now have uh, time to ask Matt some questions. So if you have any questions here in the building, probably the easiest way is just to throw your hand up in the air and I'll come and hand you the mic and you can ask it directly to Matt. Uh, Or if you would prefer, you can throw it online and I will double check shortly and see if there's any that are there. I've already got one in the building for you, Matt. Hello. Hi. Um, Hey, just regarding evil, you talked about Haman being this kind of force of evil quite a lot, um, which I don't think anyone's going to dispute. And then you mentioned Xerxes a little bit, and Xerxes kind of comes across as this obviously um, life of the party, big drinker, big smoker, good stories. But can you talk about his comparative evil to Haman? And the fact that he is, as you spoke about pretty much in the first time we did Esther, this idea of like him being, uh, you know what I'm saying? Like uh, he was just the guy in charge at the time. But yeah, how evil is he in comparison to Haman? And um, yeah, is there differences? Yeah, there's definite. Yeah, it's a really, really interesting question. Xerxes through the book comes across ultimately as foolish. Um, which is its own different category of sin in a lot of ways in Scripture. Uh, He just makes a series of really dumb decisions. And in light of his power and position, it's his own abuse of sin. In the story, he comes across as a bit benign, so he's not kind of, he's not really for anything, because he's kind of passive and foolish. And that is a really different picture of a type of sin than the overt evil of Harmon. And so neither of them look great, but Harmon is definitely seen as the villain, whereas Xerxes is just seen as a political fool. Which in its... In, talk to Andrew more about this. He's got some great insights on it. Is its own category of sin through, we see through the book of Proverbs. It's kind of foolish, kingly power. So he doesn't get off, but Harmon is this vicious, almost satanic character in a way that he isn't. Thanks, Matt. Any more in the building before we go to some online? Um, We often use phrases like good luck. (laughs) What's a better way to say that as a Christian? Wow, that's great. This is why we bless each other, isn't it? We kind of ask God to go with us into things, for God to fulfill his purpose in us for God to reveal his glory in and through what we do. Maybe we need to get things more to God doing his work in and through us and by us. May the Lord have his will in that for you. May the Lord protect and guide you in his gracious, compassionate care of your life. Maybe those kind of characters are better, kind of phrases. It's a great question. That is a good question. There's a couple around uh, Haman's end, so we might jump to those. So it's uncomfortable that God would orchestrate such a violent end for Haman thoughts. And there's also one which I think kind of ties in. Um, you jump quickly from providence to the comfort and security for God's people, but skipped over the guy who was left dead on the pole yep. um, in God's providence. 
It doesn't seem so neat and comforting for those outside God's care. Should we just be content that God knows what he's doing when he judges them? So the story is, the the way Haman's demise is pictured is that he got everything he prepared. Like, he got the pole he prepared for another. He ended up in the position he was because of his own self-obsession. So the idea almost in the text is that the Lord lets him walk to his own, the end of his own purposes. And the Lord's judgment on him is to allow him just to walk foolishly in his own sin to the end. Um, I think that's the picture you get. Because you're right, there's not this clear idea of the Lord judged him. But the clear, Lord clearly allowed that all to happen. And, and this is a really uncomfortable thing, but here is the reality of having to deal with evil. How do you end evil? You can only do it through judgment, through exacting punishment upon what is deserved. And we all deserve it. We're all sleepwalking to our own disasters in our own sin and folly. But for the Lord Jesus who pays for our sin. And so I think we can, we're a culture that can skirt around some of this stuff. But here is its reality. This is the judgment of God. Andrew's going to get to talk a lot more about this next week, which will be fun for him. <laughs> uh, and divine uh, judgment and all those kinds of things on God's people. And he has his hand up. Do you want to say something? listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.